I find that the top two stories that Episcopal priests skip over when preparing a sermon uh, are Jesus' teachings on divorce and the story we heard read today from the Hebrew Scriptures, the binding of Isaac. I understand why you'd skip preaching it. Every preacher has their own prerogative every week. Uh, The first priest I knew got downright angry whenever anyone brought up the story of the binding of Isaac. He'd wave his hands and furiously exclaim, This isn't God. Abraham was clearly schizophrenic. Maybe you're with him. Biblical scholar Ellen Davis says this story isn't pre-Christian, it's sub-Christian, antithetical to the God we see revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's a story that turns like a screw in a particularly vulnerable piece of our hearts when we hear it. And you have a priest who believes the only way out is by going through. Many commentaries these days want to make this story easier on you by framing it historically, which can be important. They remind you that Abraham lived in a world where children were sacrificed to please God's. Abraham's awakening to the voice of the angel is, therefore, Israel's moral awakening to the abominable nature of this practice. It is true that Israel stood opposed to child sacrifice against the surrounding nations, but I don't know, you really have to make this story work hard to get there. You know what I mean? You just read it. God rewards Abraham for being willing to go to this awful extreme of obedience. Abraham never says, I was wrong for thinking this was God's voice. God never says, I was wrong for asking. So the historical framework doesn't really get there for me. The only way out, I think, is through. So we have to keep reading. I've mentioned in the past few weeks how sparse biblical storytelling is. Uh, We are used to our media giving us inner dialogues and clear motives and richly depicted scenes. We are people of movies that fill in all the imaginative space that books were willing to submit to your authority. Not the Bible. God calls to Abraham... How? From a cloud? In his head? In a thunderstorm? What does he sound like? Is Abraham afraid, happy to hear from God? Where are they right now even? What's the setting? We hear the command and witness Abraham's movement, but not one bit of his feelings, or Isaac's for that matter. How old is Isaac anyway? Did they talk on the way? What was the road like? This story is extraordinarily spare, even for the Bible. And this is on purpose. You are meant to feel that awful rhythm of this slow and inexorable march to a terrible horror. 
Each step is cast in a harsh light, no nuance. God speaks. Abraham and Isaac go. Here are the words spoken. It's like someone recounting a crime they witnessed, just the facts. And what happened then? And what about after that? There are endless midrashim on this passage from the rabbis. Midrash is that imaginative reading between the lines we get from the Jewish tradition. In some, we see Abraham argue with God. In others, he makes a full-throated testament of his willing obedience. Way different feelings. In some of these midrash, Isaac is too young to understand what's going on. In others, He's a teenager who willingly helps his father fulfill God's command, eager to show obedience himself. One version of the Midrash tells of Sarah's reaction to the news, Abraham's wife. The next story in the Bible itself tells of Sarah's death and burial. It's right after this. And so the Midrash fills it in that she was so horrified by Abraham's near sacrifice of her son that she died of shock and grief right there. But let's keep going through. At the feverish pinnacle of this story, the angel comes at the last moment and stays Abraham's arm. Abraham passes the loyalty test. But as Ellen Davis notes, we are left with a terrible question about God. Can we honestly say anything other than this is an archaic story of God the tyrant who dangles Abraham from a hook and watches him squirm until the divine ego is satisfied? Here in the Bible, all we have to guide us in answering that question about God are the words. The words of the story do express a kind of relief, yet not Abraham's relief, but God's. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. For now I know, God says. God knows something now that God did not know before, Davis writes. Genesis offers little support for a doctrine of divine omniscience, if by that we mean that God knows everything we are going to do before we do it. One of the medieval rabbinic commentators on this verse observes wisely, God can only know things that can be known. And the free response of the human will is not a thing that can be known with any certainty in advance. I have pointed out this to you throughout Genesis so far. This God whose mind changes, who can be argued with, who regrets and repents and changes tactics in response to us. Which opens up another door of understanding for me. The past couple of weeks, 
We have jumped back and forth from Genesis to Paul in understanding the nature of God's covenant relationship with us. I enumerated the painful history of human development for you in Genesis, this book of our beginnings, the complicated and broken histories of ourselves that God is attempting against all odds to bless, to love. And we know, you and I, that love always entails vulnerability. God opened God's self to us and got burned pretty badly. This scene makes the most sense to me through this lens when we are most likely to ask for grand gestures of intent from the people we love, when we test those we love, we do so when we're feeling vulnerable and afraid, not secure. It's God's pain that I started to read most in this story, actually. As God uses a terrible power he will never use again, will never repeat like the flood. Or at least it won't be repeated for us or asked of us. Later, when we keep reading, God will do what we have recognized God does and will take up both ends of the bargain. We have to read actually quite a lot further to get there. But there's a reason we read this story on Good Friday or the Easter Vigil in the History of Salvation. This is Ellen Davis again. On that day, it is obviously appropriate to hear this story that tells first of a father's selfless willingness to sacrifice a beloved son, and second, of total human faithfulness to God. But if, as I believe, this story testifies to God's extreme vulnerability to human unfaithfulness, then we can say more about its appropriateness to Good Friday. It is in Christ hanging on the cross that we see, for once in history, the two sides of this story fully joined in one person. In Jesus Christ, we see a son of Abraham sparing nothing, totally faithful in covenant relationship with God. At the same time, we see in Jesus God's total faithfulness, expressed now as excruciating vulnerability, even to death on a cross. You don't have to like this story. It speaks through that tiny turning screw we all have in our hearts when we realize the things that we love are not our own. That our control over our lives and the people in them is illusory. And that we will all lose them or be lost to them eventually. I've always liked John Calvin's take on this text, actually. He's got an allegorical understanding says that the binding is that letting go of what we thought was ours and held tightly to ourselves. 
This is not a feeling we enjoy. But it is inevitable. And I think the hope here is that the response of faith is always possible, even in our greatest losses, even in facing the unthinkable. The only way out is through. And it is the path of faith that leads from the unthinkable sacrifice to resurrection.